listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. listening to Framework Focus, the podcast that explores trends, innovations, and insights in the long-term care pharmacy industry. Join us as we connect the entire LTC ecosystem. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to Framework Focus. I am your host, Dr. Mark Fulton. Welcome to our newest episode. This is our closeout episode of 2023, and we're going to call this the 2020 forecast Uh, looking ahead at the next year through the specific lens of some really pressing pharmacy topics. And with me today is an incredibly special guest, uh, a gentleman who I I truly admire, and one of the pillars of our industry and our profession, uh, Mr. TJ Griffin, who is the Chief Clinical Officer at Pharmerica. This is Framework Focused, the number one podcast for all things long-term care pharmacy, Brought to you by Softwriters, the first and only software firm 100% focused on the unique needs and workflows of the long-term care pharmacy. Well, without further ado, I want to get into introducing my guest, uh, TJ Griffin, Chief Clinical Officer at Pharmerica. TJ, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for being here. You do me uh, quite the honor of uh, of your introduction, so appreciate you. Oh, pleasure is all mine, sir. Um, so, TJ... Many of our listeners, if you're in the long-term care space, they know who Pharmerica is. But just in case, maybe we have, maybe we got the new guy on the phone here. Uh, tell <laughs> us a little bit about your background, your career path, and about Pharmerica and what you guys do. Sure. Well, a little bit about Pharmerica. We are the second largest long-term care pharmacy in the United States. We have 115 pharmacies uh, in 46 states. Uh, so we service into all 50 states. We just uh, got four we don't have pharmacies in. Uh, we service over 300,000 uh, patients every and residents every single day in skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, uh, group homes uh, for folks with uh, individuals with developmental disabilities. Uh, we certainly serve drug treatment centers now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've started serving patients uh, in their home because why should uh, why should a Medicare patient necessarily have to go to a skilled nursing facility or an ALF uh, to get the same services that uh, long-term care pharmacists provide in those locations? So folks want to age in place. We're trying to figure out how we can take those services uh, directly to the home as well. And so our Continue Care Rx program is part of that process. And, um, you know, it's going uh, going really well, actually. That's a little bit about Pharmerica. That's great to hear. So tell us about yourself, though. So I ask this of everybody who's a pharmacist joins my show. So how did you get started in pharmacy? Why did you pick this particular profession? <laughs> I get that question a lot. It's a great question. Uh, I graduated uh, the University of Iowa in 1989. I just have a BS in pharmacy degree. I kind of predated uh, the rush to the PharmD, which is now the the degree that everybody uh, comes out of pharmacy school with. Um, you know, typically, you know, you would say, you know, almost everyone, uh, a pharmacist has a pharmacist in their family or they grow up in and around a pharmacy. Uh, my my journey's a little bit different. I've always enjoyed healthcare. Uh, but in high school, I, I dated the local pharmacist's daughter. 
And so I got to know pharmacy through uh, my high school girlfriend, uh, uh, Coleman's Pharmacy in Little Orion, Illinois. Uh, um, you know, Bill just had a great, great way with people, a great pharmacy. Um, and so, uh, you know, I really uh, enjoyed uh, enjoyed that experience, uh, getting to know him and the family. Um, him and I ended up getting along better than, than uh, his daughter and I did at the end of the day. But, you know, that's 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 the way of the world. Right. So, yeah, a little small town pharmacy. He was the most, you know, he was kind of the unofficial mayor. Right. He was re well respected in town. Everybody came to him for advice. And I thought, well, this is this is a really, really cool profession. So off to Iowa, I went and um I, my journey started uh, in long, not in long-term care, but in retail pharmacy, like many pharmacists. Um, I graduated Iowa and I moved right to Florida because I didn't, um, wasn't a big partial to uh, Midwest winters. And I worked for a company called Eckerd Drugstores, which uh, they were very big at the time. Um, and uh, I chose Eckerd for a very personal reason. Um, my uh, grandfather had gotten prostate cancer uh, at a at a young age, he got to spend one year of retirement, and he kind of he fell out of his golf cart, and my grandmother was like got him to the hospital, and turns out he had had uh, metastasized prostate prostate cancer that severed his spinal cord. They gave him six months to live, and uh, he ended up living six years paralyzed from the neck down, and my grandmother took care of him at home. So. Uh, a lot of my pharmacy journey went through my grandmother, through her experiences with with pharmacy, and she was very, very loyal to two pharmacists at uh, an Eckerd drugstore in Apopka, Florida. Um, so when push came to shove, I, I moved to Florida and I, and I joined Eckerd's. I had uh, various positions with with Eckerd drugstore. Um, started as a pharmacy manager, uh, became a district manager, a regional manager. And had a had a twelve year journey through through the retail operations, and then we had another life changing event. My my wife's mother, she got uh, was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer at the age of fifty three, and this was about the time that Eckerd's and CVS were coming together uh, as one uh, one company, uh, at least in in the South. And I got a call out of the blue, like. I don't know, within a couple of weeks of my mother-in-law's diagnosis, we were living in Tampa, Florida at the time. And it was uh, to be a pharmacy director at a long-term care pharmacy called Pharmerica in Orlando, Florida, uh, which I had never even heard of long-term care pharmacy, to be honest. Uh, but it afforded me the opportunity to get my wife uh, close to her mom. And uh, yeah, and I've been at Pharmerica. That was 2003. I've been in at Pharmerica now 20 years. Uh, and have enjoyed every minute of it. Wish I'd learned about long-term care pharmacy in pharmacy school. So, you know, part of my efforts now, you know, in my role is talking to students, trying to go to pharmacy schools. I just did a lecture last year um, at the University of Iowa on long-term care pharmacy and, and something I called corporate pharmacy experience. And, uh, you know, just trying to get the word out, get more kids excited about uh, long-term care pharmacy. So that's kind of my journey in a in a quick nutshell. I mean, that is such a fantastic story, TJ. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and being so mm -hmm. candid. I, I yeah. love the personal details. I love the fact that it's personal for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really relate to your origins uh, at the small town pharmacy. Uh, yeah. That's where I got my start in a 
mom and pop shop in my hometown. And again, same thing. You really see how the pharmacists in these small towns, especially in like Midwest and the Rust Belt, how the pharmacist is such a central character to the town um, and how that respect is ubiquitous, you know, all throughout the environment. And people look up to the pharmacy and it's where you go for answers. It's where you go for just about anything in a small town. If we're not careful, we're going to lose that. And so we have to be very, very mindful of where we're going from a national perspective with pharmacy, with access to pharmacy. Um, at last count, there were 67 pharmacy deserts in the state of Iowa alone where uh, someone would have to travel more than 15 miles to go to a pharmacy. And that may not seem like a lot, but um, it is for a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, this creation of these of rural America pharmacy deserts is a, is a real worry for me. And uh, something, again, from a government relations point, I'm real passionate about making sure that we can maintain access in these rural environments uh, to the pharmacy services that they need, including long term care pharmacy services. There are many, you know, mom and pop pharmacies, you know, in Iowa and the Dakotas and Nebraska and even Texas where that small town pharmacy is the only one servicing, you know, maybe a 30 bed skilled nursing facility in that town. And so it's important uh, for that skilled nursing facility in those small towns to have that that local access, whether it's a, a Pharmerica that's taking care of it, where I utilize that pharmacy as a backup backup for me, where we might be traveling three or four hours, you know, across Texas to, to deliver to that facility, or if it's the main pharmacy for that facility, um, having those types of pharmacies available, whether they're backup or the or the primary pharmacy is important uh, in rural America. And, um, you know, it's 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 becoming more endangered. And I think it's something we just have to pay attention to as a profession um, as we work, work, work with the state and local legislatures uh, to really make sure the environment is right. So these kind of pharmacies can survive. Now, you bring up a, a terrific point, TJ. Because in, in long-term care, it's really about caring for the most vulnerable people in our society. You mm -hmm. know, people who are elderly, people with, you know, severe disabilities, people who are incarcerated, people who really, I don't think, get the press uh, that they deserve. You know, these are kind of populations that fly under the radar sometimes, but they're out there and they definitely need uh, our skills and our care as pharmacists. Now... You talked about in your career path, making that transition from a retail environment to a closed door pharmacy environment. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing about midway through my pharmacy career. And, you know, that was a big disconnect for me going from this very direct hands on patient care uh, type of work to a closed door pharmacy where it's maybe more acute. It's more urgent. However, I'm I'm not connected physically with that patient. I have to deliver everything. Mm -hmm. This kind of all changed in 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic emerged and, okay, now we have pharmacists in the long-term care setting and we need to get out there into the communities that we serve to go provide vaccines. Tell me a little bit about what the pandemic was like for you and your role in Operation Warp Speed and getting the folks in long-term care vaccinated. 
Yeah, so we sent out our first warning about COVID-19 on February 6th of 2020. So a solid 45 days before I think it really even became a big, big national story. We started following uh, following it at Farmerica very closely, sending out warnings, sending out what we could to, to help our facilities prepare and understand what was what was coming their way. I don't think we even foresaw, you know, really how bad it was going to be. I don't think anybody did. Um, but, uh, you know, it changed how we do business. It changed how we look at infection control. Um, and as we worked through 2020, you know, working uh, with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition, um, you know, we worked very closely with the government. And I was asked uh, by both those parties to be part of the the long-term care voices you were as they were making decisions about how vaccines were going to be uh, distributed. So I was on a first Operation Warp Speed, Warp Speed call in July of 2020. Um, I remember it vividly because I literally was the only long-term care pharmacist on this call with uh, government agencies, with um, the leaders of Walgreens and CVS and Walmart and Amazon and uh, UPS, you know, all the major distribution, we were really focused not on will the vaccine work, but how do we get it out to the most vulnerable uh, populations? And um, ultimately, uh, you know, the government decided they wanted to have a, a small number of contracts, let's say. So Walgreens and CVS uh, got the contracts to do nursing homes. You know, obviously, CVS has a relationship with, with Omnicare. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, I worked very closely actually with Walgreens to make sure that they understood what they were signing up for by saying, we'll give the first three vaccines uh, in the long-term care setting. I think uh, I think they all, you know, both parties did a very good job uh, as, as well as could be expected with the mountain that was, uh, they were forced to climb with that. Um, you know, my preference would have been to utilize the long-term care infrastructure of pharmacies that already existed uh, for nursing homes, but be it as it may, you know, we learned a lot through that process. So I think the next time uh, we'll be able to to step up uh, in a big way and do that. But we worked very closely uh, with Walgreens uh, at Pharmerica to make sure, you know, our 300,000 patients were scheduled appropriately, correct actions were taken uh, we learned a lot from them on how vaccine clinics are done so that uh, when it was time for long-term care pharmacies to take over in, in March of, of 21, uh, we were prepared to do so and and be of assistance uh, to our skilled nursing facilities and assisted living facilities as we could. Uh, we've learned learned a ton about it, but it was a, a trying time. You know, in the middle of the vaccine coming out, we also had the first, you know, the therapeutics that came out. Uh, literally working with, you know, uh, Chad Wurz at ASCAP. ASCAP became the gatekeeper for all of long-term care for those first, uh, you know, monoclonal antibody injections that came out. And literally, we as an industry were ordering those through Chad and his team, basically via a Google document. I mean, that may sound to your sound crazy to to your listeners, but that's how fast these things happened. And you would literally order them on a daily basis via Google Doc, and you'd get those therapeutics in. And I, I remember taking a phone call from a chief medical officer at a facility we were servicing in San Antonio, where we sent 45 monoclonal antibodies in one day. 
um, helped to administer them. And he he literally called me in tears saying, you saved 45 lives today by getting this to us, you know, in, in 24 hours. And um, it, it's been an amazing journey, I think, through through COVID. And, you know, I think our our skilled facility partners get a really bum rap on this. Um, those people were heroes coming to work every day, you know, having, uh, having to deal with what they had to deal with, with all the, the gloves and gowns and, uh, you know, infection control procedures and, uh, all the state regulations and federal regulations and the lack of PPE that they had. I mean, we ended up, you know, providing, I think $20 million worth of PPE, you know, to all the customers that we serve across the, the country. You know, I remember our, our our team procuring, you know, boats from China to come over and making sure we had folks at the docks to take take uh, take control of the inventory. And we literally moved them in and out of our, our corporate office and our 3PL in, in Ohio uh, to the customers and clients that we served, whether it uh, home health agencies, you know, whatever we could, it was all hands on deck. So, Nobody was really prepared for that, but the warp speed experience was uh, was quite quite interesting. I I don't have it to show you, but I'd love to show you the org chart for Operation Warp Speed. It'll blow your mind. I did a a talk uh, for uh, South Dakota State University at their commencement a couple of years ago and showed that, and you could hear folks on the. That was a Zoom commencement, and uh, we talked about the org chart, and it was you needed an eye chart for the org chart, but. Um, <laughs> That first call, you know, it took 30 minutes to do introductions. There were so many people on the call. And I remember one of the delivery executives, I won't say what company, he was just shocked that the vaccine was going to come out at Christmas. And what were what was he supposed to do, you know, you know, to ship all that and and Christmas. And I remember, I think it was one of the immunization nurses from one of the national immunizations agencies says, you're going to save Christmas you're going to save Christmas by making room on your planes for this. And she was surely right. As, as we all saw, we started giving those vaccines on December 22nd and the death rate uh, in skilled nursing and facilities went straight down, you know, it went straight down from, you know, starting from that day forward, you know, as the virus has changed, we've had little peaks uh, again and, and the vaccines have, you know, they've, morphed themselves each 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 time a new variant comes out and i you know i can consider that uh, something that we're probably going to see you know for the next few years i think you'll have a new covid booster with with that year's strain kind of coming out every every fall during flu season uh, you know at least for the foreseeable future i would guess you know that that story about operation warp speed and i played a role in that myself, but I was on the software side, um, helping my organization to uh, figure out technology, uh, from a technology standpoint, how do we facilitate the vaccination of everybody in long-term care? And that was such a change in role uh, for us in the LTC mm -hmm. world, because, you know, being typically closed door, being isolated from the patient, and changing the way we look at that role of what does LTC pharmacy practice look like? I'm going to go into the community and I'm going to uh, help administer these vaccines. Mm -hmm. I really like the way you touched on the scope of Operation Warp Speed and how it wasn't just about the drugs. It was about the PPE. It was about the enormous logistical task of yep. 
getting supplies and people and medication to the right places in the country. Um, we learned a lot from from COVID, but it's it's like you said, it's still there. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at the the CDC numbers here. This is just the most recent data, and you can see the uh, the confirmed COVID rates among nursing home residents. I mean, we've been scaling up since a, a bottom out this summer, since July. And so I know the, the new vaccines are out. And we also have the RSV vaccine that's brand new that just came yeah. out this year. Uh, and plus, you have your good old flu vaccine. And that's that's still a core component of, you know, what we're delivering as pharmacists. So what has changed in Pharmerica with regards to um vaccination efforts and vaccines as a component of your business model so a couple things one we demanded from you know from the manufacturers that we are no longer going to stand in the back of the line for flu vaccine we want ours as early as the retail folks have because again we have the most vulnerable population and I, this is the first year in in my 20 years where i think they stood up and listened and we had our entire shipment uh, available you know by mid mid september this year um you know when you can go get a flu shot in july at a drugstore and you know there are year there were years it took to the end of october to get all of your vaccine for for the most vulnerable population that just isn't right and so one of the things is we took a very big stand on the flu vaccine this year and said we we're not going to be last and i've i think uh, we kind of did that again as a as a group of long-term care pharmacies, that wasn't just Pharmerica pounding the table. We all kind of as a group pounded the table. That is one other, I think, thing that came out of COVID is the pharmacy profession is now more together than we ever had. I know we'll probably talk about that subject a little bit, but that, that's been a really good thing, I think, uh, that coming out of the pandemic is the coming together as pharmacy and not being, you know, just hospital pharmacy, long-term care pharmacy, retail pharmacy, nuclear pharmacy, compounding pharmacy, we're pharmacy. And I think the profession has come together in a, in a good way with that. So um, I'm sure we can talk more about that. But um, the, 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 the spikes and things that, that are happening, um, it also was real important, you know, these COVID manufacturers of the, the booster, they're you know, this is commercialized now. So it was no longer as of September free vaccine anymore. And so they were still feeling their oats on, okay, you know, the government paid the bill and we had a distribution network. Now, how do we distribute it in a commercial type environment? They struggled out of the gate with that a little bit. We're also still fighting um, the vaccine. I want to, I, I will call it, um, I don't want to call it an educational issue, but we're still, I think, getting a little bit of uh, hesitancy still out there. And I think that's rubbed off, in, unfortunately, in this flu season on the flu vaccine as well. I think we've seen a decrease in staff uptick uh, of even the flu vaccine with all the politicization that has happened with vaccinations, which is unfortunate. Um now, I will say, I think we've done a good job. The RSV v vaccine with for respiratory essential virus, which is normally, uh, you know, an ailment of children, which has now started to affect the elderly. We have seen a good uptick in that. Um, and part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that 
Um, uh, the federal government allowed Medicare Part D to cover RSV vaccine during a Medicare A stay. Normally, um, you know, flu vaccine and pneumonia vaccines were the ones that were covered uh, by Med B uh, for Med A patients. Everything else had to go through consolidated billing. Well, since this was a preventative, they definitely wanted to have, did not want to have RSV outbreaks in nursing homes. They made a point of saying, well, Med D can cover it during a Med A stay. So we've seen a nice uptick in that. So, uh, and we're seeing kind of a little bit of a rise in that right now uh, in this season. So now would be the time if you're a facility, you didn't know that your pharmacy could provide that RSV vaccine through their uh, your Med A patients, Med D benefit, to make sure you reach out to your uh, long-term care pharmacy and get that vaccine uh, in. The, the COVID boosters, those are now free flowing. Uh, going through the system fine. What we've learned um, through uh, some of the staffing issues and, and, and things that are happening in the retail sector is there were not as many retail pharmacies open to or available to do vaccination clinics in assisted living facilities this season. So we have tried to pick up that slack where we can, at, but we're really trying to gear up for next season to make sure that for any of our customers that would want a pharmacist or nurse to come to their facility to do a vaccination clinic, we are going to avail ourselves of that. Through hook or by crook, we're going to make sure that our, our uh, assisted living facilities don't have to scramble for a partner. Um, and that's just this season was a function of retail not having the, the workforce to come out and do you know, a 30-person assisted living clinic. They'll come to a 100-person 100, clinic, but they didn't want to avail themselves into some of these smaller uh, facilities. And I think that was because of their own staffing staffing problems. So we want to make sure we have that available. So we're gearing up for that, whether it's a scheduling system, um, making sure we have uh, all the protocols in place, you know, with the end of the emergency you know, pharmacists in a lot of states can't just give a, a vaccine without a prescription. So you have to have a physician protocol. Some states actually do require a prescription, just a couple. Um, but a lot of states require a, an ND signature on a protocol for you. Um, so it's gathering those protocols, making sure we're, we have our ducks in a row with that. Um, we did a large um, vaccine clinic in Massachusetts uh, in September, we were the first actually to have the COVID booster and we did a vaccination clinic. I know at a state fair, it sounds kind of crazy to do a vaccine clinic, but we partnered with USA Aging uh, in a fair called the Big E, which I had never personally heard of before. Uh, it's out of Springfield, Massachusetts, but I want you to imagine your local Midwest state fair in New England where Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island all come together for one big fair. They do it all in the same place. And so like 3 million people go through this fair and we did almost 4,000 vaccinations in two weeks. Um, some people asking us to give them all three, you know, a flu, COVID, and RSV all at the same time. So uh, we, it was kind of a little bit trial by fire, learning how to do that many at, in, a, in a short period of time and bill for them and make sure we got everything taken care of, which... Uh, we did, but uh, it was a, a big learning experience for us as we move into like next season where we do this across the country. So, but yeah, that was, it's, uh, it's been fun times, still sending out lots of uh, vaccine every day. Um, 
which is good, but I still don't think it's enough. I think uh, we still have to work on this hesitancy, um, this vaccine fatigue, if you will. You know, folks going, oh, I don't, you know, I've had, I got the first two shots, maybe one booster. I think I'm done. Um, and so, uh, I think you can tell I, I had the COVID booster. Well, you can't tell by looking at me, but I had the COVID booster this fall and it hurt again, like the first one, which told me that it, it you know, we're, we're creating some new uh, new inflammatory response here and we probably did need the booster for this season. So I think if you pull up that CDC data and see the cases, if you see nationwide the death rate, I mean, we're still having the equivalent of a 747 crash, you know, every couple of weeks. You know, if an if a airplane crashed every two weeks, you know, that'd be the lead story in the news. You know, we've gotten numb to the fact that 350 people are still passing away of COVID, you know, every, you know, week to 10 days. So um, it's it's important that we keep that in mind, keep that in perspective, uh, that folks are still passing away from this and to continue to have conversations with our friends and family and colleagues about the efficacy of the vaccines and that there's nothing to be scared of. You know, a, a Novavax came out with their vaccine, which is more like a traditional vaccine, an attenuated vaccine, kind of like we, you know, always had before. You know, if you were hesitant about the mRNA vaccines and want a more typical vaccine, Novavax is available for you. It's a good vaccine, good efficacy rates as well. I think they've done a good job of that. Maybe we need to talk a little bit more about it just so um, folks who've never gotten one, well, well all right, I don't, I didn't want that scary sounding one, but I'll take the the regular one. And so it's again, having those conversations. Um, and as I tell long-term care facilities, I think it's really important to find who in your departments are your leaders. Who, who does everyone look up to in housekeeping? Who does everybody look up to in food service and in your CNA group and your nursing group? It's not always the DON or the shift supervisor, but it could be Mary who's been there for 25 years. And if Mary's gotten the, the vaccine and has had no issues, you know, look to Mary to lead that, that particular group over the finish line. I think we had a lot of good conversations and taught a lot of facilities that kind of strategy and it, and it helped. So we've got to get through this hesitancy again or fatigue, if you will, uh, and, and get continue to get folks uh, protected because if, if the people who take care of, of, of our unsung heroes, as you call them, the forgotten folks, you know, in skilled nursing facilities that you know, our moms and, and grandmas and aunts and uncles and um, folks who defended us during wartime in the 60s. And, uh, you know, those people are important and uh, it, we need to be protected in order to help protect them. And so it's important for staff to, to, to continue to get these boosters. You know, TJ, you I love the way you tell that story. And I especially like how you describe the relationship between the long-term care pharmacy and the facility and the caregivers as a partnership, how it's, yeah. it's really not didactic. It's a collaboration of, you know, mutual dimensions of professional care to help provide the, the best possible, uh, you know, healthcare experience for these individuals. Um, and you also touched about the retail workforce and how some of the issues that they've been experiencing mostly on the retail side have kind of trickled over and impacted what we do in the long-term care uh, world. So 
We'll talk about that in just a moment, but for right now, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. We're gonna hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. See you soon on Framework Focus. Long-term care pharmacies are always on the hunt for ways to scale their business and ensure they're a solutions partner for their nursing home and skilled facility customers. Now, with the aging baby boomer generation projected to increase the number of Americans ages 65 and older from 46 million to more than 95 million by 2060, the demand for long-term care has never been greater and neither have the growth opportunities for LTC pharmacies. Framework LTC is a long-term care pharmacy software designed to improve scale Scalability. This platform is incredibly effective for scaling your LTC pharmacy business. It starts with your workflow management, designed around your operations. Framework LTC was designed with long-term care intricacies in mind, which provide a number of different features unavailable with a retail pharmacy software. Framework LTC helps to accomplish these seven critical categories. Streamlined workflows, automated manual tasks, custom services to meet unique needs of different facilities, gain better visibility into your operations, make data-driven decisions, curb your billing complexities, and manage new services. Learn more at frameworkltc.com. That's frameworkltc.com. Welcome back. Thank you very much for staying with us through the break. We are here at Framework Focus. I am your host, Dr. Mark Fulton, and we are talking with TJ Griffin, Chief Clinical Officer at Pharmerica, Having a terrific conversation, uh, we were just talking about the vaccine effort in long-term care, really where that's been, where we're at now, and where we're going next. And I'd like to shift focus a little bit because one of the things you touched on, TJ, before the break was the impact of the retail workforce issues and how that kind of trickled down and it has impacted long-term care. Uh, but let's start here. Over the last few years, we've seen a ton of advances in pharmacy practice, uh, driven mainly by regulations at the state level, where we're seeing an expansion of scope. We're seeing additional opportunities for pharmacists to participate more in direct patient care uh, and more service-driven activities. So tell me your take on that and how it's impacting workflows in the long-term care side. Yeah, sure. So, you know, there a lot of states are addressing it through uh, changes in their collaborative practice agreement rules where you can work uh, with physicians, uh, do, you know, order tests. You know, you can have consultants that are actually during their consultant visits now ordering tests as long as they have a collaborative practice agreement in certain states with physicians. It's uh, in, increased our ability to uh, have a more hospital-like formulary environment in certain states where, uh, again, if you have that collaborative practice agreement and you get a non-covered charge, you can work with uh, the, the insurance company now as a almost like an agent of the physician to to work through those non-coveds and get orders changed on a, on a on a quicker basis. You know, in long-term care, everything has to come through an order. And so uh, those changes... Uh, you know, don't always happen quickly, uh, but you also can't have med availability issues. And so, uh, you know, those states with the more liberal collaborative practice agreements, you know, you can work through through those. And I think you're seeing that a little bit of that in every state uh, coming up. They're in various states of uh, legislative accountability. 
Uh, and I think we're also, you know, maybe on the cusp of it on a national basis as well. I read a recent conversation uh, with the chairman of the subcommittee of uh, the health health committee in the House, and he said when members came back from their uh, summer break this year, he heard more on a bipartisan basis about um, provider status for pharmacists, uh, you know, asking about it, what could we do about it for the first time, really uh, coalescing about it. So I'm not predicting it in any near time future, but it's certainly being talked about even at a federal level, um, having provider status uh, for pharmacists where we can bill Medicare. You know, during COVID, they found out that huh, people go see their pharmacists. We gave 75% of all the vaccines. I think um, 65% of all the tests rolled through uh, pharmacists. So, you know, if they could trust us with in a pandemic to do to uh, COVID testing, why couldn't we do routine strep throat testing? Why couldn't we do routine flu testing and follow that up with the appropriate therapeutic that goes along with the results of that test um, and take some stress off of the family practices and emergency rooms and um, uh, you know, those urgent care centers where, you know, they, they have other things to, to, to take up their time than a simple, you know, throat swab for strep throat. Pharmacists can enter, enter the, the system and really help there because it's a basic um, need. There are many states that do allow that, but, but many don't. And, you know, frankly, physicians fight it. You know, they think it is an encroachment uh, on their abilities. And it couldn't be further from the truth. What it is is a complementary approach to medicine and healthcare that allows pharmacists to be, again, a more integral part of the team and take some of the mundane things off of their plate so they can focus on some of the the more aggressive issues that they need to fight because there's frankly a shortage of family practice physicians in the country too. So it's not just uh, the the pharmacist uh, workforce issues, there's physician workforce issues as well. So why not um, utilize pharmacists who are so well-trained in some of these uh, test and treat uh, cases? Uh, and um, I, I think we're gonna get there uh, in, in most states. You know, some states uh, are making it available maybe just for Medicaid patients, you know, not commercial patients. Um, we'll, we'll get there. But that, again, is where pharmacy is now starting to talk with one voice. Um, this isn't just, uh, you know, uh, National Community Pharmacy Association asking for this. NCPA is teaming with long-term care, which is teaming with NACDS. You know, I'm in those meetings, you know, in Washington with those groups where we were talking to folks together really for the first time and um, not as separate groups. Um, I went I just recently came back from ASHP. So the Hospital Pharmacy Association meeting and ran into a lot of colleagues that are like, why are you here? I'm like, because we're in this together, because they go from the hospital to the long term care setting. And it's important for us to know what's going on in your world so that we know what to expect in the long term care world. And it was a a very collaborative type of meeting and learned a lot. And, I, you know, I can see what they're doing from a population health perspective and how that's going to affect, you know, long term care into the future. So, again, all establishing those relationships across the pharmacy spectrum is is important uh, as as healthcare uh, progresses uh, in the U.S. to a, a maybe a, a, a different model than it was 30 years ago. You know, you're you're so right, TJ, because when we think about the model of what healthcare looks like in this country, uh, we tend to think of this kind of doctor, pharmacist, patient relationship, 
you know, where I go to the prescriber, I get a prescription, I take it to the pharmacy and get it filled. That's only been around since 1951. I mean, that was established way back with the Kefauver Harris Amendment. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, for all of American history, the pharmacist was the place to go if you wanted to get uh, medications for anything. And so they would say, well, you know, here's what we can do with medications, with the drugs that we have available, um, you know, and physicians would come to your house. And there was more of an equal playing field, I think, between the role of the pharmacist, the role of the physician. And it's always been a complementary relationship. You know, and again, I, I hear what you're saying, because when we talk about expansion of scope of practice, we talk about pharmacists practicing at the top of their license. You know, it, it's not a zero sum game. You know, the pie just gets bigger. You know, if if I can do more as a as a pharmacist with my license, that doesn't take away from what a physician does. It just makes the pie bigger and it is a better uh, model of care because it provides more access and, you know, frankly, you know, more access to pharmacies, you know, healthcare in general for patients. You know, we're right in the, you know, the beginning stages of the silver tsunami, like the aging of America, it's all hands on deck for the next 30 years, you know, in healthcare. And so, yeah, we do have to collaborate together because the system's going to get um, clogged up with a lot of patients, uh, and and uh, folks are there's not enough. I try to tell folks in the skilled nursing sector, you shouldn't be scared of hospital at home or chronic care at home because there's going to be plenty to go around. It's a complementary service, and so it's so important what you just said there. Uh, collaboration. Um, you know, one of our mottos at at Pharmerica is care, commitment, and collaboration. I hand out C cubed. Uh, pins all the time because it's about patient care and it's about um, uh, committing to the successful outcomes of our patients, the successful uh, viability of the customers that we that we serve. That um, you have to collaborate together, and every uh, customer you have has different strategies and needs and goals. And how do you work with the far, you know with the services that you have? to help them accomplish their goals. Because when your customers succeed, you succeed. And all of that just leads to, to, to better patient outcomes. And then, you know, how do we expand that into home and provide those same uh, collaborative experiences with home healthcare agencies and nurse practitioners and, and uh, providers that are going back out? I mean, I think uh, house calls now are coming back because there's transportation issues. And so we'll bring healthcare uh, to folks that are uh, in their home. We're, we're working with a client in, in South, South Florida, independent uh, living systems who during COVID, um, they delivered 11 million meals, hot meals to residents in South Florida during COVID. Wow. And, and have, have used that as a way of saying, you know, we're going to provide uh, access not only to good health care, but to to a healthy meal as well. And so, you know, we're working with them on how do we um, collaborate with them on medication in the home to these same folks that are already continuing to, to deliver uh, hot meals to who, who are chronically ill. Um, so there's enough to go around. We don't have to be at each other's heads. We don't have to let egos get in the way. Uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And how do we how do we make sure that we expand uh, access, improve adherence? Because access and adherence 
produces better outcomes, which actually reduces healthcare costs. I think you're seeing the plans finally see that. They're starting to see that pharmacy isn't just a, a ledger on one side, that making sure that, yeah, if my pharmacy bill goes up, my other bills ought to be coming down. So, you know, if my folks who are on my plan are adherent to their medication, I'm going to be spending a hell of a lot less uh, in emergency room visits and, and hospitalizations if folks are taking their medicine right. So now they want to have those kind of agreements and talks and discussions about how we can improve adherence both in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, and at home. And that's really kind of the the future here of pharmacy in the next the next 20 years. Oh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you 100%, TJ, because one of the things we've seen so often uh, in the past year is this, this emphasis on value-based care and outcomes-based care and payment models that reflect that as well. So it's a paradigm that we will need to accept and be part of and really maximize our role in. Uh, in order to show our value as pharmacists. You know, you talk yeah. about alliance. <laughs> you talked about like pharmacists coming together, collaboration. And we saw that on a grand scale this past year. Something that I've never seen at all in my particular career, and I've been a pharmacist for 20 years, is we saw those walkouts in October and November in the retail sector. We mm -hmm. saw it boiled over kind of in the Midwest where you were talking. And those had a pretty big impact nationwide, um, both on people within the profession and even people on the outside looking in saying, wow, something seems to be broken here. But what I want to get to is instead of saying, yeah, well, that's retail and that doesn't affect us over here on the long-term care side, uh, I'm inclined to think that it does. So what's your take on how did the walkouts and the disruption we saw in the retail sector, closed stores and that, how does that trickle over and impact the LTC side? And do you see similar concerns in long-term care? Why or why not? Well, that's a, we could probably do an hour on, on that subject. You know, um, part of it is the, 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 the payment structure that we have in America for medicines and how pharmacists are reimbursed and we're still reimbursed on product and not service. Uh, and so it puts a premium on what are the most profitable products that, that, that you can move through a pharmacy. And frankly, vaccinations is one of those areas that is profitable. Um, and so if you're spending your time doing shots and, and not spending your time filling prescriptions, it makes the filling prescription part very tough because now you're giving shots and then you got to run back and do prescriptions. It makes the delicate balance uh, of that part of the process um, tough on that retail pharmacist. So I think some of the changes that you'll see are more automation being introduced into pharmacies so that the, the, the count poor part of it isn't as big at the, at the local pharmacy level. So we can spend more time doing what's important, whether it's test and treat, doing those vaccinations, as well as lobbying from the outside to make sure that the pharmacy profession as a whole through some of these collaborative practice agreements, through PBM reform, uh, that that pharmacists are more reim are, are as reimbursed for the services they provide as the product that they provide, uh, and I think you're seeing you know we did just have a, a PBM bill get passed by the by the Senate, so you know we'll see if uh, a complementary bill in the House can come together and we can have a little bit of of PBM reform. I think you can see there's some bipartisan. Um, 
backing of this uh, because uh, access to services doesn't matter whether you're a, a Democrat, Republican, or independent. So um, you're seeing some of the reform uh, come through on that. We'll we'll see how that that plays out. Whether how does the how does uh, retail disruptions affect pharmacy and the long term care side? It makes it more difficult for us to have, for instance, twenty four hour backup pharmacies. So if we have a pharmacy in Pittsburgh that that closes uh, at nine o'clock and we get an issue at one o'clock in the morning, you know, normally we would you know have through a service or an on-call pharmacist, you know, call in an order to a backup pharmacy, you know, a 24-hour retail pharmacy, have that, in, you know, if it's not in their e-kit, have an initially initial supply sent to a facility so that that patient can be taken care of. Well, you know, I, I bring up Pittsburgh, as I think you all are in Pittsburgh, there is only one 24-hour retail pharmacy in the Pittsburgh market right now, one. Wow. And so uh, that's a that's a right aid. I can't exactly remember exactly. I, I had to look it up the other day because we were having issues trying to take care of folks, uh, you know, overnight. And so what happens is, you know, you end up opening your pharmacy later, you know, provide, you know, um, and that affects your own your own bottom line. You know, even even one call that doesn't get taken care of in the middle of the night is one call too many, you know, for our patient population. So. You have to do what you have to do to expand your own hours and make sure that you have a process that folks can be taken care of. But this cutback of of hours and service by the retails has affected long term care, at least in this vein, by decreasing the the number and the scope of twenty four hour pharmacies that we can rely on for backup services. You know, thanks so much for giving that perspective, TJ. Because I think myself, that's something that maybe wouldn't be top of mind when I thought about the impact of the walkouts and the impact of the disruption in retail pharmacy operating hours. Um, one of the things you brought up that, that I've been following myself is the PBM reform legislation. Now mm -hmm. we're seeing that move through both at the federal and at the state level. The yep. states seem to be moving a lot faster than the federal government, um, but we've seen pushback, right? We saw that in Oklahoma where we had a pretty pretty severe PBM reform bill passed, but then overturned um, in the federal court on appeal. So healthcare, though, tends to be a bipartisan topic. It's a it's a winner, I think, across the aisle. And mm -hmm. it really doesn't, you know, go blue or red, because there's something in it for everybody. So yeah. let's turn from the pharmacy on the LTC side to the facility as our you know partners in this because they're going through their own kind of staffing crisis, workforce issues right now. We have the CMS staffing mandates that you know were published last year, talking about minimum staffing standards that have been proposed for long-term care. But we've had some, I think, some conflict around that because a lot of pushback from the industry and also some pushback from within Congress itself. So. What's your take on the long-term care facility staffing mandates? How does it impact the pharmacy side? And what do you think is the future outcome of this? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball on it, but, um, you know, I have to listen to what our partners have to say about it. And a six or seven billion dollar unfunded mandate to, to, to create a one-size-fits-all staffing profile for a facility doesn't take into account those those local issues you know uh, in a in an urban market where there's more access to 
to nurses and 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 uh, and workforce. Maybe some of that makes sense. But if you go to, I, I know I bring up Iowa a lot. If you go out to Storm Lake, Iowa, there might be a thirty bed sniff, and there might only be four RNs within thirty miles. And to how you know how can a sniff a thirty bed sniff have Three, have 24-hour coverage of, of RNs because it's a one-size-fit-all mandate. Whether you're a 30-bed sniff or a 300-bed sniff, you have to have 24-hour RN coverage. And that just doesn't make sense in a more rural, less acute, skilled nursing environment that's not going to have access. And so what's going to happen is if that happens, the facility is going to close, and that's going to have a ripple effect both in the community and it's going to have a ripple effect within pharmacy as well. And so, um, and then the other disappointing thing is we talked about, they talked about nurses, they talked about RNs, and they talked about CNAs, but didn't take into account LPNs anywhere. Like we're, like that, that is the, 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 the bootstraps of the workforce and, and facilities are LPNs and to not even count them as part of the staffing mandate made absolutely no sense. So I really don't know where that came from. I do think there's enough bipartisan angst over this. I think um, to, to, to affect some change, um, we'll have to see how this plays out over the next year or so. Um, you know, sure, we would love to have facilities filled with all the RNs we could hire, but that's not the reality of the workforce. What really I think legislative we should be focusing on is how do we grow the healthcare workforce? How do we how do we get nurses to want to come work in this environment to help taking care of those elders who who really need all the help that that we can provide to them? How do we encourage folks to come into this this environment? This the doom saying of what uh, skilled nursing facilities are. This demonizing of skilled nursing facilities through COVID hasn't helped. You know these these folks do God's work, and they did God's work through uh, through a, a crisis where you know they're you know you saw folks wearing garbage bags because they couldn't get gowns, and so don't demonize the actual folks doing the work because. There are so many, so many heroes and so many of those folks didn't make it, you know, and so not just our, our, our patients, but the staff as well. We lost staff. So it's, if we can just talk about the work and talk about how do we grow the workforce, make it something that folks want to do and dedicate themselves to and talk, instead of demonizing it, promoting what it really is, which is, um, you know, people deserve to live their best life. They also deserve to live their best end of life. And so how do we create a workforce environment that wants to help take care of those folks? So that's really, I think, where we we have to get to is how do we grow the workforce, make sure that long-term care and taking care of elders is something to be proud of and excited about. I know I wish I had done it from the very first day I had left. I wouldn't give up my Eckerd experience for anything. But I probably would have joined long-term care a heck of a lot sooner had I known about it. And so trying to promote long-term care, not just from a pharmacy side, but from a nursing side and a facility side, because we're going to need every bed. You know, again, that silver tsunami is real. And, um, you know, I look forward to the next, you know, 20 years of, of pharmacy and where we grow it and getting folks excited to take about, uh, to, to, to take care of these seniors at uh it's a blessing to me to be able to work in this in this environment and 
uh, so many other folks, I think, if they knew about it, would would find it the same way. So um, helping facilities take the pressure off facilities and the the day-to-day job that they have to do, taking care of those folks, whatever pharmacy can do from a pharmacy side, you know, if we can supplement with nurses, with medication technicians, as states expand those rights, um, you know, how do we teach and train that next generation of the workforce is really, I think, just as important as PBM reform and and these other, uh, you know, areas that we talked about legislatively. You know, TJ, I really love the way you put that because from the pharmacy side, I really love how you make a clear distinction of how the practice of pharmacy is about understanding your patients and having that close relationship with not only your the patients that you're servicing, but the caregivers uh, who are taking care of these folks day in, day out and the facilities uh, where all this activity takes place. And there's an overwhelming uh, wave of compassion that is palpable from the way you talk about uh, the practice of LTC pharmacy and why it's so critical um, in this nation, especially now and for the next 20 years. Um, And it's not just the elderly. I mean, long-term care, yes, there are a lot of folks who are senior citizens. We do hospice, skilled nursing, and that side. But we also take care of folks who are uh, incarcerated, folks who are in group homes, folks who are in one place and they're not going anywhere for a while, and they need medication, they need pharmaceutical care. And one of the places that we see this growing is in the behavioral health space, where I think we have a lot of opportunity for long-term care pharmacies in the outpatient treatment space uh, Mm -hmm. because of the expanded role of some of these programs driven by regulation, increased access to uh, buprenorphine, removal of the X waiver, uh, that type of thing. Uh, Talk a little bit about how the CMS behavioral health expansion, how that's providing more opportunities for long-term care. Yeah, so we're trying to build a a long-acting injectable uh, business unit. How can I go out and work with some of these mental health providers who want to be able to, again, um, it create a adherence when when folks with behavioral and mental health issues um, flood the system, it's when they stop being adherent to their medication. And so now you have a lot instead of having to take a uh, clozapine every day, you can have a long-acting injectable, whether it's Risperdal concert or Abilify or some of the other products that are out there. But physicians don't have the time necessarily or wherewithal to have all those appointments to make sure all their patients can stay uh, adherent to even the injectable. So we want to be able to provide that solution, work with providers, give us, a, rent us a room and we'll We'll uh, we'll be the provider for the long-acting injectable. You you write the order. We'll we'll have our team give give the give the shot. We'll provide the medicine. Give the shot. Take that off your plate to make sure you you and the resident or the folks that you serve, citizens you serve, um, have access to these mental health uh, medications, which are so important. Um, you know that you brought up. Um, buprenorphine and the X waiver. I think it's also important to understand that there are still some changes that need to be uh, made with medication-assisted treatment where, uh, you know, physicians are allowed to dispense methadone, for instance, but they can't prescribe it. 
you know, it has to come through a, a medication treatment program. So, you know, what we're seeing now with the aging of America is we're having folks who have opioid use disorder break a hip and end up in a long-term care facility, and neither the, uh, the neither the medical director or the pharmacy can help them because, you know, specifically with methadone. And so, you know, we're working very closely with the Drug Enforcement Administration to update those rules because the same issue happens with incarcerated folks. There's no access really for them as well, unless the the, the prison system is a, a, a medication treatment program, which typically they're not. And so um, you're having real opioid use disorder uh, treatment problems when they end up in a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living facility or, or uh, through incarceration. And so we're working very closely to try to get those rules changed. I was, I'm also the uh, uh, past uh, co-chairman of the drug, the, the drug uh, uh, DEA task force with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists um, and working real closely with them on these kind of issues the last four or five years. So Wow. You know, when we talk about the nation's most pressing health issues, uh, you know, for for three years, it was COVID-19. And the thing that people will say now typically is the opioid epidemic and, you know, drug abuse and addiction, fentanyl, that type of thing. And I really love the way you incorporate those narratives to show how long-term care pharmacy is playing uh, such an active role in not only addressing the most prescient healthcare concerns for our entire nation, but doing it in a way that's personable, way that's effective, and a way that's collaborative uh, with our partners across the healthcare ecosystem. I think that is a terrific point to leave it. I wanna thank you very much, TJ. Thanks so much for being a part of the Framework Focus podcast. I'd like to thank Todd Yuri and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'd like to thank you guys, our listeners. Please keep it tuned to this channel. Uh, we'll see you back here next time on Framework Focus. Yeah.